This is Tom Fox, and I'd like to welcome you to Innovation in Compliance. In this podcast series, I will bring you interviews with some of the leading experts who are changing the way practitioners approach compliance. Although the name compliance is in the title, it's really about innovation. And I wanted to drive the conversation about innovation in compliance into the 2030s and beyond with a focus on innovations for the compliance practitioner and the compliance professional. You want to learn how to bring your business into an innovative state and more innovative business solutions for compliance problems, issues, and concerns. This is the podcast for you. Innovation and Compliance is a production of Compliance Podcast Network. In this episode, I have back Paul Trulove. Paul is the CEO at SecureAuth, who helps companies with authentication. As we move beyond the panacea of multi-factor authentication, Paul talks about some of the innovative ways his company is leading the discussion around security and secure transactions. Hello, everyone. This is Tom Fox back again with another episode. I'm absolutely thrilled today to have with me Paul Trulove. We've been trying to do this podcast for some time because I really wanted to talk to Paul and what he does. So, Paul, first of all, with an incredibly long-winded introduction, welcome to the podcast. Thank you. I'm thrilled to be here again. Paul, could you tell us uh, a little bit about your professional background and your current role? Absolutely. I, I think the most most interesting part of my background for the, the folks is cybersecurity and identity management. And, and I've been doing that for the last 15 years. Been with a couple of great organizations during that period of time, SailPoint and now SecureAuth. And what I've noticed as my career through has, has wound through the journey is identity has just gotten more and more important in our daily digital lives. And from that perspective, the way in which identity intersects with compliance and security is continuing to increase. I have held a variety of product management, product strategy roles, and then most recently as security or as CEO of SecureAuth, stepped into the leadership role from that perspective. Where's SecureAuth located? SecureAuth is headquartered in Irvine, California, but we have gone fully remote. So we have a, a wide range of employees that span the globe. We've got a little bit of a concentration in California, a little bit of a concentration in Texas, a little bit of a concentration in Portland, Oregon, as well as Vancouver. And then we've actually got about 50 people down in Buenos Aires, Argentina, that do a lot of our development and QA for our SecureAuth IDP product. So tell us a little bit about SecureAuth, what you guys do, both products and or services. So we're a product company and we are focused on, on as you would imagine from the name, authentication, making authentication secure, but also making it much more user-friendly than it's been in the past. So from our perspective, authentication is that entry point to every user's digital journey, whether they are interacting with systems for work, whether they are interacting with websites, applications, data for their personal lives. Today, we all authenticate multiple times a day, if not multiple times an hour. So we're trying to make that authentication journey easy, but we're also trying to make sure that the access that is ultimately granted as part of that authentication is also done in a secure fashion. So our products are designed for large enterprises who are deploying authentication 
both for their employees uh, as well as their customers. And today, both of those journeys are, are incredibly important from, from the security perspective. Why is multi-factor authentication no longer the panacea that we all thought it was? And why should we move to continuous authentication? Yeah, I, I think this is a typical journey we see with almost every technology. It, it starts out as a panacea and then as time goes on, people find ways to circumvent it. And that's exactly what's happened to, to MFA. So I think the good news is for organizations that have adopted MFA, they've at least taken a step on the journey to better security. I think that the biggest challenge that people have with MFA today is, is twofold. One, the people that we were putting MFA in to protect against have found ways, particularly when you're using one-time passwords, to often circumvent the, the, the purpose of MFA, which was in increasing security. I think the other problem that we've seen with MFA is that it increases friction in a transaction. And if you think about the amount of times you have to log into different systems at work, if every single time you're logging in, you're prompted for a one-time password, whether it's an SMS code, or another type of one-time password that's pushed to a device, it, it disrupts your workflow as, a, as an individual worker. Same thing, we're starting to see a lot of situations in retail where those one-time passwords are disruptive to the buying process. So a lot of people will stall out and leave things in their shopping carts because they don't have their phone handy. They, they didn't have it the correct number in, and so they never got the one-time password. And so that friction is actually creating an impact both in, from a security perspective in terms of the one-time passwords being intercepted and then utilized for nefarious reasons, or from the in-consumer perspective, it just creates a, a blocking mechanism to finishing a transaction, which is not good. The, uh, what is the Trust Zero Initiative? The zero trust initiative, I think is, is what we're talking about. <laughs> zero trust is, has been something that organizations have been, been talking about for a number of years. It really started from the network security space. And back when we were inside of a network, people were, you know, fairly comfortable in as long as I'm inside the network, security can maybe be reduced in terms of the amount of friction that's applied. I think as more and more organizations started to look at their network as a combination of both internal and external systems, they all rotated towards this idea that I'm going to trust no one and I'm going to verify always. And, and that is the basic paradigm for zero trust. I think importantly though, over the last several years, what we've seen is zero trust rotate away from being primarily something that was talked about in the context of, of networks. And more importantly, it is applied broadly across cybersecurity. And I think one of the areas where we are starting to see meaningful evolution of zero trust is in identity and in identity and access management more broadly, where we no longer have the ability to trust some of the basic information that we may have trusted several years ago in terms of validating somebody is who they say they are. So in, in, in many ways, if you're going to implement zero trust, and you're going to move to a paradigm where you trust no one, you verify always, you have to start with identity. You have to make sure that you have verified the identity that is trying to access something. You've authenticated them through multiple high assurance methodologies. And, and if you go look at, at the NIST 
authenticator assurance levels, the AAL1, AAL2, AAL3, you're starting to see people really move up within that chain of assurance to higher and higher levels of, of proofing of the identity and then proofing of the actual authentication transaction. And that's going to basically become a, a fundamental requirement if you're going to stay in compliance with the broad regulatory environment, stay out of trouble legally, be able to get cyber insurance, let alone secure your organization, the applications and the data that you're using or you're being entrusted to protect on behalf of your customers. So all of that basically comes back to zero trust. And it's why I think you continue to hear a lot about zero trust in the market. And at the same time, I think you're seeing identity become a much more important part of zero trust and, and a zero trust approach to security as time goes on. Well, I heard a lot of corporate governance issues in your last answer. If that's a fair assessment of what you said, are you having or is SecureAuth having these types of discussions with boards of directors so that they can understand not only the challenges they might face, but some of the solutions and how they could use those in the business context? We are. I think corporate governance and cybersecurity now are inextricably linked in a way that they, you know, were not just several years ago. I, I think, you know, most public companies have at least adopted some type of cybersecurity responsibility on the board, if not created a full cyber committee, depending on, you know, the scope of, of their business. And so as part of that, there's the there's different aspects, right? There's a responsibility to secure, but then there's also the ability to demonstrate compliance with U.S. or global regulatory requirements that, that constitute the full scope of governance in any organization. Some of it is governance of the business. Some of it is the ability to demonstrate governance with external requirements. And that is a common conversation that's happening at the board level. And I think one that will continue to increase as time goes on. And, and you look at the material risks in a business that have to be managed from a governance perspective, what we do is now in the flow. And, and one of the other things that we're seeing that that is, I think, also reaching the board level is as people have looked to purchase cyber insurance as a way to transfer risk of a financial event happening tied back to a cyber breach. In many cases, those cyber insurance policies are now mandating a very different approach to authentication and access management to ensure that people are taking the right steps to secure the organization as part of procuring a new cyber insurance policy. Or increasingly, what we're seeing is it is now a mandate for renewal. And I think all of that ties back to the board in, in different capacities. What will be the next uh, generation of authentication, or at least what do you see perhaps down the road? Yeah, I, I think we're right in the middle of, of that evolution today. Um, in, in many cases, what we're seeing is this rotation away from passwords, which we've been talking about for a long time. Not quite as long as we've been talking about the death of the mainframe, but in, in a lot of ways, I, I see some parity between those sentences of passwords are dying and the mainframe is dying. At the end of the day, technology evolution can take a long time in, in certain situations, and I think that's where we are you know, today. I think ideally, we would eliminate username and password as a meaningful way to authenticate. But my guess, if I asked you how you authenticated today, into your work systems or your, your personal systems, you probably entered a username and password in some capacity. So we're not there yet. The good news is the technology adoption cycle 
is starting to speed up as it relates to moving beyond past username and password as a basis for authentication. And it's one of the reasons that I think MFA is not necessarily the panacea that everybody wants it to be, because oftentimes what is happening is username and passwords are still being utilized as one of the factors. MFA defined very simply is just multi-factor authentication. And so if, if all I've done is added a one-time password, but my other factor is still username and password, I've marginally improved security, but not in a long-term way. So I think as, as we've seen this year um, and, and even towards the end of last year, an acceleration around the adoption of FIDO2 and, and passkeys, the ability to leverage device level capabilities to establish a root of trust without ever entering a username and password because you've got a strong token that is sitting on a laptop, sitting on a desktop, sitting on a mobile device that creates that authentication framework based on biometrics, based on biobehavioral information that we have and begins to take us away from ever using username and password as a, username and password as a factor in a chain of multi-factor authentication. I, I think that rotation away from passwords has to continue. We've got to see it speed up. And as part of that, you're going to see a new solution set continue to evolve where we're, we're going to have to work together across different industry lines in order to bring all of those things to fruition. Because at the end of the day, what we're still finding in a lot of, of breach scenarios is it's the weakest link that creates the breach. So if an organization internally has moved their workforce to a multi-factor authentication paradigm that's passwordless, in, it, in its execution, but has not done that for third-party contractors. If a third-party contractor is still using a username and password for part of their access into those internal systems, then you can still have a breach happen because of legacy issues with passwords, legacy issues with one-time passwords in a multi or step-up authentication scenario. The technology is there. That's I think the good news, and, and it will continue to improve its applicability to a wider range of systems and a wider range of user populations. But I think the ability for organizations to really embrace it, fund the project, and then go through the change management process of implementing the project is the thing that we're going to have to get over. The other aspect of all of this, I think, is AI. And the ability to really leverage AI to do things that humans have not been able to do in terms of analyzing information that we have to make better choices around how we're going to allow somebody to authenticate. And that, that I think is an, another part of this evolution is it's not good enough to just create static rules and force everybody to follow the same authentication workflow by taking in more information about the user, what they're accessing their patterns of access in the past, comparing that to other users that have similar traits or, or maybe wildly different, we can actually do dynamic user journeys. And, and I think that's where you're going to see, in addition to the passwordless framework, you're going to see risk engines and risk analyzers come into that equation. You're also going to see orchestration become a bigger and bigger part of how we manage the dynamic journeys that, that need to happen as part of authentication so that we move away from these static policies that have been implemented into an era where we can leverage a lot more information and in real time change the user journey based on the risk assessment that's being done 
for authentication, and then importantly, post-authentication, once somebody is actively using the application or data access that they have. Can the AI solution, or at least supplementation, will it cause greater friction if you're going to look at the differences literally by employee? I think what you're trying to accomplish with AI, AI is exactly the opposite. You're trying to use AI to lower the level of friction. So if I have more information that I can process around the authentication transaction, then I can create a level of assurance that the person is who they say they are and is properly authorized to have access to that application. Then I can make a better authentication decision without asking that user to, to interact the way that we do today. By having an AI assessment done in real time, where you've collected data before the authentication event, during the authentication event, and, and you're able to generate a level of risk, then you can decide how much friction you want to, to apply. And it might be, I went through a transaction earlier today where I'd logged into my laptop to get my day started using the MacBook finger, fingerprint scanner. Touch ID. And then when I went to the application, because I had already been authenticated on my device, it let the authentication to the application happen automatically. But the implementation of that authentication was still actually multi-factor. It looked at multiple things to determine that there was a high level of assurance that I was Paul Trulove and I am supposed to be accessing that application right now. And so it let me go through, even though there were multiple factors, it didn't ask me to interact with my mobile device for a one-time passcode SMS or a push notification to the device so that it actually did exactly what it should have. It decided that there was a low risk that this wasn't me and let the transaction happen very seamlessly. If, it, if I was coming in from a different country and a different IP that I'd never, ever been on, that data point alone might have been enough to change the level of assurance, reduce the likelihood that it was me. And so it would have added that additional friction dynamically as part of the process. Well, you mentioned insurance as a risk shifting or risk management strategy. I'm always intrigued when we start to see businesses pivot to a new requirement, not based on government enforcement or perhaps even government regulation. So what I heard you say was, this is starting to become a business requirement. Mm -hmm. And if, once again, if you find that to be a fair assessment, do you see this business requirement moving towards just standard contracts? So you mentioned third-party vendors, for instance. If I want to, Tom Fox Consulting wants to work with Paul Trulove Energy, is it, are you starting to see businesses requiring this higher level and more effective or moving away from multi-factor authentication to something towards continuous authentication. And I'm trying to articulate it. Are you starting to see the businesses requiring this change for those who they do business with, whether it's a supply chain procurement or on the sales side? Absolutely. I, I think, I think, unfortunately, the response in some cases to the government mandates has been checkbox compliance or checkbox security. When it's done for valid business reasons, I think people tend to embrace it e even more holistically. And I think that third-party vendor risk assessment is beginning to change the dynamics because if a customer comes to me and says, we'll use the Paul Trill of Energy example, if you come to me as a, as a customer and I'm going to be your vendor and you have 
high security requirements, you may actually give me those same security requirements and ask that I validate the way that my business operates against the way that you are operating your business. And, and multi-factor authentication was a good example of a place where I think for a lot of people, they're starting to ask those questions as they do vendor assessments, especially for technology vendors. Same way that several years ago, I, I think in the early adoption of cloud computing, they, they would many organizations brought their data center requirements into those conversations. Now I think we're starting to see security come into those same conversations as well. And so if I'm going to entrust my customer data with a third party organization so that they can perform a service on behalf of me and through that, my customers, I want to make sure that they, that they are protecting that data because I'm ultimately responsible for whether that data is used appropriately or accessed inappropriately, all of that falls back to me. And so we've definitely seen an acceleration in the cyber insurance world of just saying, look, unless you can demonstrate you've put these kinds of controls in place, we aren't going to write the policy or there's a significant premium adjustment, higher premium adjustment placed on not having those controls in place. I think we're also starting to see that impact relationships between organizations and the way that they work together, especially when the, the digital linkage between those organizations are critical to the relationship. Let me change the focus just a little bit and move from the United States to the EU with GDPR. And if you want to throw in the United Kingdom, I'm happy to do so, married to an English girl. How do you see GDPR or what do you see that GDPR means for authentication? I think, I think GDPR, I think any, anything that has to do with protecting access to information ultimately has, a, has an authentication component to its infrastructure. Just like Sarbanes-Oxley did and the derivatives, gosh, almost 20 years ago, the reality is anytime I'm trying to protect access to consumer data, I have to have a way to, to manage who has access and authentication sits at the front end of that process. So I think organizations that, that have not chosen more modern approaches to authentication put themselves at risk of data breach that then, from a GDPR perspective, create a cascading set of pain, both regulatory and financial, if they aren't able to control who's getting to, to the consumer data. I think in, in, there's kind of two flavors to it. There's the internal part as a as a business, I have to provide my employees with access to customer data to deliver services or goods and services. Am I protecting that data internally? But I also think when you look at authentication from the consumer side, more and more people want to see a very tight workflow between the privacy side, the creation of a new identity, the association of identity for commerce and other reasons, and then the ability to, to offboard that information down the road if I want to, to cease having a relationship. And at the end of the day, I think what you're going to see in, in the, you know, what, what we're starting to broadly call consumer IAM or SIAM, authentication and access management is very tightly tied into this paradigm shift that we're starting. We're on the early edge of seeing a lot of those things fundamentally transform so people can provide or can provide better access, but also give end use from a a privacy control perspective of their own data, more control throughout the, the life cycle of, of that relationship. I wanted to ask you, you've recently joined, or at least joined the Forbes Technology Council. 
wanted to ask you a couple of questions. Could you tell us what that is and how you hope to use that as either a platform, a forum, a mastermind, or how do you hope <laughs> to use it to get your message out? Yeah, so the Forbes Technology, Technology Council, you know, is a is a group of professionals worldwide that you know I, I think ha, ha, want to have a voice, and Forbes gives them a channel to interact with a wide range of, of different topics. You know, for for me, I'm spending a lot of time in the cyber world, cybersecurity world, identity and access management, and it it takes conversations like these allows us to put down our thoughts in and hopefully in doing that create the opportunity for other people to learn from the sometimes the challenges and mistakes that, that we've seen other people make, but importantly, provide frameworks and, and ideas and create a very dynamic environment for people to engage in, in conversation around important business topics broadly within Forbes, but in terms of the area that I'm focused on, more of that cybersecurity and identity ecosystem that is continuing to emerge. So I, I wish I, I wish I was more active on it. It takes time to to sit down and put your thoughts down on paper. That that's something that I want to continue to commit to as I go forward. Well, unfortunately, we are near the end of our time for this episode. But before we leave, I wanted to ask you if our listeners wanted any more information on Secure Auth, the topics we've touched on, or perhaps to reach out to you, what would be the best way or places for them to go? Sure. So secureauth.com is the easy way to find more information about the company, our products, customer case studies, and those kinds of things. And then I am easily findable on LinkedIn. There are more than one Paul Trulove, which might sound surprising to some, but I'm pretty easy to find on LinkedIn. Paul, I wanted to uh, thank you again for taking the time to visit with me. I hope that we can continue this conversation and I look forward to uh, talking to you down the road. Absolutely. Thanks, Tom. This is Tom Fox again. Thank you so much for listening to this edition of Innovation and Compliance. We've linked to Dr. Lazuni's LinkedIn profile in the show notes as well as to aware.com. I hope you will check out their site. As I said in the intro, they're doing some very interesting things around biometric data and compliance. This will be the final episode for Innovation and Compliance in 2023. I want to wish all of our listeners a most joyous and happy holiday season. And I hope you'll plan to join us in 2024 for Innovation and Compliance. Innovation and Compliance is a production of the award-winning Compliance Podcast Network.